0: Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalised keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best priced jewellery whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, bangle or even more? Look no further than Crafted Arts. Crafted Arts is a local business based in Barry within the Vale of Morgan and they have a range of all the perfect items you need. If it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary or maybe it's for someone's birthday, maybe something for christmas or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time crafted arts is the business for you if you want to know more or see what they have in stock then you can visit them locally at 29 high street barry phillic morgan cf627 eb or you can go onto to their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk you can even email them at info at or maybe just give them a call at 4 double seven eight nine nine four two four eight. Trust me, it's worth it for the perfect gift. The best thing about Creative Space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in TV, film, or even theatre. We also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well. So, do you want to have experience in making jewelry? Do you want to pick up a hobby, but? not know what to take or where to start then look no further than the veil jewelry workshops veil jewelry workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry they will help you make a range of silverware including rings bracelets and many more pieces you will learn the basic silversmith skills such as soldering texturing shaping and lots more not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well so if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewelry and if you're very interested go on to their website at www.veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at or even phone at zero double seven eight nine seven nine four two four eight Hey guys, how's it going? My name is Reese Deans of the Creative Space Podcast, and I am back with another brand new episode here for you guys, truly. Now this man, what a gent, what a lovely, lovely guy. He has been there and done out on the stage theatre. He has worked with some of the biggest names in theatre history, including the likes of Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I mean, he's played Raoul on the 25th anniversary of the Phantom of the Opera. He was in the 25th anniversary of Les Miserables. He has played numerous roles. He's been on many, many plays and stages all through his career. And he is none other than Hadley Fraser. Hadley and I sit down to talk about his career of course and we also sit down to talk about many many things as well and do you know what, there was something about Hadley that just had a warmth to him, I hope he's hearing this, he he was just a warming, loving person and I hope he goes for well. what a nice guy he was, but, but without further ado, we gotta get down to the podcast, so it was me and Hadley on Creative Space Podcast. talking quite a lot though about um you know marvel theater and I, I truly wanted to know something before um we get on to the the, the biggest adventure and you mentioned y- y- your father being from cardiff um so tell us a bit about more about your backstory then you know so well uh, you know where was you raised and who were your mother mum and dad
1: yeah there was no um there was no sort of performing arts really in the immediate family. I think I had a sort of great uncle or something who was sort of theatrically minded, but um, my dad, like you say, was, was a Cardiff boy and uh, was in the army for a bit. Well, my brother's in the army as well, actually. Um, so that's kind of in the family. I don't quite know um, where that fits into everything. I think we both like dressing up. Um, and my mum was a school teacher, so there really was no sort of... Um, I don't really know where that came from, apart from the fact that I suppose you'll know, Reese, it doesn't take much for anyone from Wales to start singing or at least start telling a story or, um, or trying to communicate with one another. There feels to me a sort of a sense of, of a desire to connect that's in the DNA from Wales. And I think I've, whatever I inherited from my dad, I think there was an awful lot of that in there you know the the like the storytelling and 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 all of that kind of stuff so um uh we i did a lot of music as a kid um and i suppose that's where it came from um a lot of singing i played guitar from very young i played cello and um and then when i got to school i did a wee bit more drama and then on leaving school i sort of an art i was sort of i did english at university english and drama I sort of had designs on being, a, on being a journalist and then I got to university and sort of thought, actually, I'm going to get annoyed if I get 10 or 20 years down the line and haven't had a go at acting. So um, that's really how it all came about. Uh, yeah, there was no sort of grand plan and there was certainly nothing in the family. It was just sort of one thing that led to another. And I suppose because I'd always been singing, mu- musical theatre sort of um, felt like a natural, uh, like a natural landing point to begin with and so i suppose the, uh, you know a lot of the beginning of my career was was musical theater although i've been lucky to always do plays and, and television and film alongside
0: it and um
1: yeah so i guess that's the backstory. really is that enough riz
0: no that's plenty i was just gonna ask you then where did this voice come from that i, I will say this, a beautiful tenor voice of yours because it, it, uh i was doing some research last night and um writing some notes and my fiance was sat next to me. She was writing a um her script for university, and I played. There's a lot of videos of you on YouTube, especially with your singing. And she literally turned to me and went, "Who is that singing?" I said, oh, "This is Hadley Fraser. This is this is the person who I'm interviewing tomorrow." And and she said to me, "My God, he's he's got a beautiful voice," and she's more of the singing side as well. And um, uh. And 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 I was, and she was just absolutely amazed by it. So I I've always wanted to know where did that voice come from? Was it like a as so many many people would say? Is it is it a gift or would you say that it, it's practice makes perfect?
1: I'd say maybe a bit of both. I, I'm I'm sort of slightly allergic to the idea of anything being a gift. I suppose. I mean, I think most people whether they be musicians or writers or sportsmen or scientists or whatever people end up doing in life they probably have a natural predilection for something and a natural interest in something but by and large they usually work for it don't they Mm. Um, and i suppose from about the age of about 13 to 18 i was really fortunate that i grew up at a time when there was music sort of really invested in the education system Um, I don't know whether it's the same these days, but uh, I didn't go, you know, I just went to a normal state school, Um, but there was like music just really heavily in, in, in in that system. And and so I had voice lessons when my voice started to break and kept on going really. And I had two fantastic teachers um, uh, sort of throughout my teenage years and learned classical sort of, classical technique really, I suppose. And then I got to university and sort of found musical theatre. And I also played in lots of bands as well, played and sang in lots of sort of function bands and stuff like that, that sort of, I don't know, broadened my vocal horizons a little bit. You know, Suddenly I was having to sing much higher than I ever had done in my classical exams, which was all very sort of baritone and safely don't scare the horses. So I suppose there's probably a, a combination of of Welsh gold in the in the pipes, and just a lot of hard work too. Um, and then that continued. I did a I did a postgraduate um, one year course at the Royal Academy of Music, and that was very sort of heavily oriented towards the voice, as you might imagine, I guess. And I I learned a great deal from a lot of the staff and the faculty there, um, just in terms of technique and stuff like that. I mean sometimes it's luck that what comes out and I guess these days because I've been doing it for so long sometimes I don't necessarily have to think about it um, these days what I have to think about is upkeep because as you get older you know it becomes harder to um, it's like a sportsman I guess it, it becomes harder to sort of stay in shape doesn't it yeah. and that's the same vocally I think um, you know you have to look after your voice an awful lot more And all those things that they used to say to me at college which i was like yeah i don't have to worry about that like not eating past eight o'clock or not drinking alcohol or not drinking caffeine like if i'm doing a show if i'm doing a musical now I, i i have to follow those rules whereas when i was 20 and i was first in the industry i could sort of come out and belt out a show on stage every night and then go for a couple of pints afterwards and get up the next day and do it quite happily um so stuff changes, I suppose. And your voice changes. My voice is definitely dropping a wee bit, I suppose, as I get older. But um, uh, but I'm kind of fine with that. You know, you can't be a sort of juvenile tenor forever.
0: Because, <laughs> um, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a singer myself. I, I'm more down for the, the acting and the writing part. And it, it was funny because um, Emily, my, my fiancé Emily, she... She, like I said, she's the singer part, she loves performing and everything, and she's got a, a, a PA system at home. Um, I I never knew because because I love doing musical theatre anyway. So if you love doing it, then there's no re- real shame in about worrying bits and pieces. And I and I sat there and I was like, you've heard me sing, haven't you? And she was like, yeah, yeah, I've I've heard you sing, I've seen a few things. I was like, I was like, would you call me a singer? And uh, because it didn't bother me. I was like, oh, did you come? Because my my worries are the acting and the writing, like I said. I never really bothered. And she was like, I think you're more of a character singer. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> a bit of character acting? What's, what's character singing? Yeah, that's damning with faint praise, that is. What's that?
1: That's damning with faint praise. Did you um, get up and sing something to prove yourself? I hope so.
0: Well, um, I said, I, I turned around and I said to her, look, um." I, I love I love singing you know, oh, well not over the top I mean. When I was when I was in school, um, my my music teacher, my older who was head of sixth form as well, he knew I had something because um, I, I'll never forget this. It was um, it was two thousand eleven I think 2011, 2012. Uh, no twenty twelve it was, and my my drama teacher was going to put on a, a school production of Little Shop of Horrors. And, and I will never, like I said, I keep saying it, I never forget it. He's watching on the projector uh, of the film. Steve Martin comes on as the dentist on the motorbike. And it was in a spontaneous moment. I was to walk in through the drama room and he literally just went, looked up, looked at me and went, "Reese, you're going to audition for that character. And I was like, <laughs> am I? Am I really? All right then. Um, but, but I was very reluctant. They were showing me the songs. They were showing me this and and, uh, but I couldn't do the auditions anyway because my my dad's father, my grandfather, passed away, and the funeral was on the day of the audition. So I was like, oh, and it didn't bother me. Um, but then I came back uh, a few days later, castless, re-stings, or in the dentist. I didn't. I got the part without even audition. I was thinking, what are they doing? was going on and so I did this yeah so I, I did the song did, um uh well the, the two songs that he uh, sang but then um Mr Borton, the music teacher said are you doing anything outside of school like uh amateur dramatics or anything and I went yeah yeah well I'm I'm at the moment doing Guys and Dolls, but I'm in the chorus. And he went, do you know any of the songs by Heart?" And I said, oh, sit down, you're rocking a boat, I know. And he went, come with me. So we went into a music room and he went, Reese, just sing for me. And I started singing and then he was there going, Jesus Christ Reese, where did that come from? And it was because I went so high in octave. So I've always thought I was more baritone tenor. And then going on to my fiance, I, um, so I started singing um, what did I sing? This is the moment from Jekyll and Hyde. Because um, then when I went to sixth form, sixth form, and I went to the the school down the road, the music teacher there, Matthew Morris, he he saw something and he was like, "Oh, Rhys, come here. Do you know this song? This is the moment." Blah blah blah. And I started singing it, and he was like, "Jesus Christ!" So I proved to her then, and she was like, "Oh yeah, you, you can hold the tune." And I was like, "Yeah, thanks." <laughs> So that's where it all came about but I wouldn't call myself a, a singer in some ways
1: oh, you never know. You, you yeah. know you never know where you might need it that's what I was thinking
0: yeah um, the one thing I always wanted to ask you as well and it's on the second question is how do you know Stephen Mia I mean because on he's on the yeah because on, yeah. yeah, on the email it was just the I love the little line that, that you said about Stephen Mi it's like well you've had Stephen me on the show and you sold me already. No problem. So how do, how do you know him?
1: Stephen and I have worked together a couple of times. Um, we did a musical down in Chichester called uh, The Pajama Game um, near, near enough a decade ago, which was sort of lovely old 60s musical. Um, it's very sweet sort of um, jazz score and uh, Stephen was the choreographer on that and it ended up transferring into London, actually came into the West End. Uh, I couldn't come with it. I was doing... Coriolanus at the Donmar at the time so I I couldn't do it but yeah I'd worked with Stephen then and then we did um, a show called City of Angels together at the Donmar Warehouse a few years later which again is another jazz musical which um, finally got its transfer into the West End just pre pre pre-pandemic in fact we'd only done we'd done maybe about two weeks of previews um when the pandemic hit and, and we had to close down so there was sort of six month contract that just went begging there and it's a real shame especially for Stephen because his work on that show was 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 terrific he's um he I think he's one of our fine you know he goes without saying he's one of our finest choreographers and finest musical stages um that we have in the country so experienced so knowledgeable but also such a kind and um gentle and a man just full of humility especially someone brimming with such talent um i'd sort of drop i'd drop everything to go and work with Stephen. i think the world of him
0: mm. uh, when i had him when i had him on the podcast it took a while and i mean it took months yeah. because we agreed on one th- we agreed on a, a date and then he was busy didn't happen then which was fine i was understandable. Um, we left it for a bit, why? Right? And then, and then um, I went off and did other things and try to see who work could bring on. And then it, it got to a point. Then a couple couple months ago that we we finally got to it, and it was just it was worth the wait because the stories he told and just having the just having you know the forty to an hour long conversation with him was was just enough for me. And he was lovely and he was engaging. And he he was more. He was intrigued at what I did, and I was I was just absolutely in awe because of what he'd done, especially with Mary Poppins as well. I mean,
1: he's so experienced, you know. And there's not there's not much that Stephen hasn't done. You
0: yeah,
1: know, on Broadway around the world, he's um he's one of those sorts of treasures that the industry I suppose knows about, but probably doesn't have too much profile beyond that, you know. Um, but I think. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's many better than Stephen, and there's no, there's not many better men than Stephen either. Really, you know, he's 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 a he's a gorgeous man. Yeah.
0: So when you finished university, you went on to the West End and played Marius in um, Les Miserables. Now, how did that come about? Because that was your first ever, I'm guessing, right, first ever performance or role on the West End stage.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, like, like I said, I'd done, I'd finished university and then and then did my postgrad degree, uh, my postgrad year, I suppose, diploma it was um, at the Royal Academy of Music. And um, Lame is uh, came about because at the time when I was at the Royal Academy, I, I, I've, I've told this story before, but um, there was a very famous production of My Fair Lady happening at the time that uh, Trevor Nunn had directed with um, Jonathan Price and... Martine McCutcheon. I don't know if you remember Martine McCutcheon. She was in EastEnders for years. I mean, this is probably. uh, How old were you in about two thousand and two, Reese? Were you even born?
0: Two thousand. I was five in two thousand. I would would have been six.
1: Yeah. So that's when that's when I was entering the industry, which is quite a sobering thought. But um, there was this production of My Fair Lady, and um, they were recasting for the second cast, Mm. and. I think they were having trouble finding Freddie Einsford Hill. I don't know if you know the show, but he's the sort of young juvenile, sort of chinless wonder. And um, yeah, cool. they came into the Royal Academy, and a couple of a couple of people from the course, myself and uh, a couple of other people, were, were auditioned for My Fair Lady for because um, Cameron McIntosh was producing that, and I didn't get it. But he said to me at the time, he said, "Look, when um, when they miss when we have." Auditions again for the recast of Les is. We'll, we'll get you in. He was true to his word, and um, and I and I finished. I finished college about maybe four or five weeks early to go and start rehearsals for Les is. So it was um, it was sort of right place, right time, I suppose. But I also owe a great deal of gratitude and a debt of gratitude, I suppose, to Cameron for sort of plucking me out of college and going right on you go. And um, uh, and this was. I suppose I, I, I think back on it now, and I think I'm incredibly lucky. A to have had that sort of launch pad into the industry, but also B to launch straight into such a sort of secure show. I suppose there was no there was no um, there was no thought of Lamey's closing, or or you know there was no there was no idea of uh, you know it's still going now to this day. The realities of the of the of the theatre world if you open a new show, there's no guarantee it's going to be running a week after. You know, I've done, I've done plays and shows where I actually, we've run for a week and then closed because it's been no good or reviewed really poorly. But going into a show and having a year to sort of learn the ropes, learn how to be on stage, learn how to conduct yourself off stage for right or for wrong, I suppose. Um, uh, that was a really big... Really big and very fortunate um uh turn of events for me, I suppose. Are you a fan of the show, Reese? Do you know it well? Uh Les Yeah.
0: Limiserab growing up has always been I've always tried to avoid Limit because it was so popular. When you try you don't want to be the person to be jumping on the bandwagon, but um uh I caught the bug, I caught the Limit bug when I was in sixth form. And as I was in sixth form, the film was released and you were in it. Uh, for,
1: yeah, for about five seconds.
0: Yeah. <laughs> hey, you made an impact though, because I I was like, I recognized your face, and then I looked you up and then I was, and then the, the clip turned up and I was like, oh my god, yeah, that's the castle. You had a really good voice because I went a fret I went with a <laughs> So um actually I was going to ask you uh, I was, I was going to ask you later down the line about uh, the the film but I might as well now so how did that come about and what was it like to be performing with the likes of um, Eddie Redmayne
1: yeah i it, um i'd been in the sp- it, so my first job was Marius in the west end and then about a decade later i um I'd been to America and lived there for a little bit and I came back and I was sort of twiddling my thumbs and not really getting much work and I got a call sort of out of the blue from Cameron's office. Again, I owe a great deal of of gratitude to them, but they asked me sort of really out of the blue to come and play Grantaire, who's the the drunk student in the 25th anniversary concert. Um, I was very happy to be part of that. And then off the back of that, Cameron sort of came up to me. I remember one we were rehearsing the twenty fifth anniversary, and Cameron came up to me and said, "You've grown up a bit, and your voice has grown up a bit as well. Would you like to come and play Javert?" And I thought, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I'm desperately excited but I'm not sure I'm a natural Javert, so I came in and sung for him and for the team, and they obviously thought it was a good fit. And so at the uh, sort of in the wake of the twenty fifth anniversary, uh, Alfie Bowe and Matt Lucas and myself um, all sort of uh, kept going in the show in town with some other fantastic people as well. I don't mean to disclude anyone else, but um, you know, those would be the people that you'd know from the 25th anniversary. And it was during that run, while I was playing Javert, it was during that year that the, the film sort of um, took off and, and it was a slight, I don't think I'd be talking out of turn to say there was a slightly strange atmosphere backstage at the theatre because obviously we all felt like we were telling this, this story night in night out and uh, there were a, a lot of people I suppose on that stage quite rightly sort of thinking oh well probably you know would be no stretch of the imagination to think we might be asked to be involved in the film. Um, we, I think pretty much everybody got the chance to audition. But because it was Tom Hooper directing and working title producing and all of this kind of stuff it, it sort of there was a lot of people making a lot of decisions so it wasn't really just Cameron's decisions who um who ended up in the film but it was a very it, it was a very strange feeling doing the show at night as Javert and then going in the next day to Pinewood and filming um filming on the set which felt like you really were on the streets of Paris We, it was the, the oddest thing actually was being on this incredible film set that felt as about as real life as it possibly could do and then getting bussed into the theatre that evening and sort of stepping out onto the stage and just thinking oh this is just a bit shit really <laughs> um, no this doesn't really feel like it should do, we're used to this epic, epic film set now um, but you know I suppose I must have been. I didn't really shoot for all that long. I was only there maybe for two or three weeks. Um, yeah, you know, Eddie was um, Eddie was very admirable to watch. I, th- I I really admire him as an actor, and he um, he was always deep in discussion with Tom Hooper. I think Tom lent on him a lot and his um, his intellect. I enjoy- I really enjoyed watching Hugh Jackman work some reason, I got left on set while they filmed "Bring Him Home" in, in in the little cafe there. I don't quite know how. I I don't think I was really allowed to be there, and I I didn't linger on purpose, but I was on set when they when they filmed that, and that and that was really special to to witness. Um. And yeah, I mean those those were the sort of those are the the main guys when when I was there as well as. You know, all of the students, a lot of whom I knew from the stage show and loads of supporting artists for all the for all the sort of fight scenes and stuff like that. And, you know, cannons going off left, right and centre. there was one day where we did the sort of final assault on the students. And I think we only, we only did two takes that day because we did the entire sequence. So all the stunt performers, all the cannons going off um, and everybody singing at the same time. Um, It was it was it was it was a joy to be a part of. I have to say, and it's one of the few things. I'm not very good at watching myself back on screen. If I'm honest, you know, I've done TV and film, and I've never seen it. But I I did go. I, I went to the cast and crew screening of that, and and I thought they did a brilliant job. It must be so hard putting such a beloved show like that on screen, and also making it something slightly different. Mm. Um, I don't know what did you think of the film because some people absolutely love it some people I think find it um, hard because they have such an attachment to the stage show Um, what did you
0: think I've never here's the thing I've never ever seen it live on stage and that is uh, for someone who's I'd say a big theatre person like myself I should really get my ass in gear and go and watch it Um, but when I went to watch the film I cried four times did you yeah, quite four times. Uh, uh, the two of them that I know was obviously a dream to dream because Anne Hathaway was, I thought she was brilliant. Uh, no, I remember the three. Uh, the, the kid, uh, the one who played gavosh when he got killed and Russell Crowe puts the medal on, mm. on the child, I thought, oh my god. Um, and the third time was when Hugh Jackman he's, he's slowly passing away and Anne Hathaway comes and says, look, I can't remember the actual lines, but then he goes and I, I went. I went. So um but it it it's weird because um in relation to uh a Lab, I actually know a guy who um played Gavrosh in the in the film with Liam Neeson and um Jeffrey Rush. Okay. Yeah his name's um Shane Rose Goods sir. and he played um Gavrosh in the film and and when he went to watch it, he it was it, um, he, he said yeah, so I right. it's okay, <laughs> you know, because obviously he did the film, but it was just yeah,
1: we're well, our own worst critics as well, I think yeah. You
0: know, um, the one thing I wanted to ask you about because uh, when you said you played Javert, I, I've always wanted to know. And "Stars" is one of my favorite uh, songs, and I'd love to if I get a, put it more time and effort in I love to sing that song but what is it about that song that makes an impact if you know what I mean what, what, what so, what so it probably sounds like an ignorant question what's so special about the song Stars why is it that people would love to sing it even though you, you get some songs that a lot of people would it's always like a, a bouncy song or it's a it's an impact song it's like a oh, it got a lot of oomph to it but Start, it's a very subtle song, it's a very, even though it's sung by the the antagonist, I've always put an antagonist, because I never really saw uh, Javert as an, as an antagonist for some reason, I never really saw it, but my you know, question is- I suppose, it, in, it, I
1: suppose in the sort of sense of classical literature, he's the antagonist, isn't he? Yeah. Um, I don't know, I, I mean, I'll ask the same question of you in a moment. I. It's, it's a beautifully written song, sort of structurally, just musically, I think. Uh, and you'd have to say that of most of the score, to be honest, you know, Claude Michel Schoenberg, I think is, is that his finest in, on, on that score. Um, there's a sort of sense of it being a bit of a prayer. Uh, you, you know, prayer is so um, prevalent in that show, I, I, I think. Uh, you know, People's connection with, um, with God or with faith, you know obviously the um bring him home in the show technically speaking is called the prayer rather than bring him home so the the characters are very often i think making an appeal to god um and i suppose javert in that moment is at his most human i suppose so in the context of the show he can be an unlovable character although i suppose in terms of the pure storytelling, he can be an unlovable character, though audiences, I think, sort of, like, love to love the baddie, don't they? So mm-hmm. he gets a lot of love, you know, from the audience at the end. But he's at uh, his most human there because I suppose he's on his own and he's able to sort of say, look, this is why I operate the way I operate. Um, I've never been, a, I've never been a huge fan of it, actually. No? And I think, other than the fact that it's a beautiful song, You could probably cut it from the show and Javert might not be as attractive a character to play because that's a lovely song but he would be a more dislikable antagonist I suppose. Mm -hmm. So I suppose my my answer is sort of contained in your question in a way. It's hard to think of him as the antagonist because that song humanises him.
0: Mm. I don't know.
1: <laughs> that, that just made sense when it came out of my mouth, but I'm not sure I believe it.
0: Yeah. I've always figured it's it's um well I say it's a human song. It's just you you don't blame the guy for trying to do his it's like I asked again, I asked my fiance the other day, what what makes what makes stars no, it wasn't my fiance, it was my friend Lewis early on today. I asked him, because we're doing a play together in a couple of weeks, and um I said, What makes stars so good or such a strong song and, and, you know, try to d- defines the character and he turned around and said to me, because it's what he, he sort of represents everyone who has a conflicted, mm. is conflicted with life, whether it's right or wrong, you know, and, and I was like, that is a good answer. I can't fault that. <laughs> Cause it, yeah, I,
1: mean, dr- I mean, drama is conflict, isn't it? Yeah. And and he is a conflicted character, I suppose. He has this drive to do the right thing. He's very sort of, he counts on himself as having a real sort of moral rectitude. But then at the end, you know, lets Valjean go and then kills himself as a consequence of the enormity of his action. Uh, You know, he sort of crossed his own moral Rubicon and then really can't live with himself it's a sort of literary character that I suppose we'd find it quite hard to probably find that person in real life these days. Um, but I suppose that's the that's the joy of, or, 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 I mean I remember reading the novel both times when I did the show and looking for clues within the novel and um, that's the joy of the sort of uh, the beauty of Hugo's writing I think you find it in Dickens as well, you know those conflicted characters that aren't necessarily, I think, true to contemporary life, but ones that we can't help but be drawn to in in sort of historical fiction.
0: Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalised keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best-priced jewellery, whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, bangle, or even more? Look no further. crafted arts crafted arts is a local business based in barry within the Vale of morgan and they have a range of all the perfect items you need if it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary or maybe it's for someone's birthday maybe something for christmas or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time crafted arts it's the business for you. If you want to know more or see what they have in stock, then you can visit them locally at 29 High Street, Barry, Fairleigh Morgan, CF627EB. Or you can go onto their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk. You can even email them at info at craftedarts.co.uk or maybe just give them a call at 77 89 Trust me, it's worth it for the perfect gift. The best thing about creative space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in TV, film or even theatre, we also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well. So do you want to have experience in making jewellery, do you want to pick up a hobby, But. not know what to take or where to start then look no further than the veil jewelry workshops veil jewelry workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry they will help you make a range of silverware including rings bracelets and many more pieces. You will learn the basic silversmith skills such as soldering, texturing, shaping and lots more. Not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults, it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well. So if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewellery and if you're very interested, go onto their website at www.veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at or even phone them at zero double seven eight nine seven nine four two four eight. You mentioned as well about Cameron McIntosh, and I just I've I've watched his uh, the the documentary the that the BBC did, and you know the the life story and the career so far of of Cameron Macintosh. I mean a a powerhouse figure, the man who who's brought many many musicals to life. Because of his either his own backing or his hard work, and and you mentioned him quite a little bit, you know, when he approached you and to 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 talk about Javert, but I wanted to know a little bit more of him as as a person, but also as someone who is also the producer and theoretically the boss, mm. in some ways. Yeah, um, I
1: suppose people have spoken a bit about Cameron Mackintosh. Much more than I have, but I suppose he um, he represents uh, a a desire, I think, to foreground theatre in this country uh, in a way that not many other people can can manage or have the sort of imagination to manage. You know, his. His imagination in getting some of these things off the ground, and then his his will and his expertise in in terms of getting them up, sort of unparalleled, really. That they, you know he has contemporaries in the, in in a producing department. You know, like uh, I suppose someone like Andrew Weber, I suppose, or or Nika Burns, or um, uh, you know Howard Panter, those kind of guys. But yeah, there is a sort of drive with Cameron that I think is is lacking in most mortals. And um, his attention to detail is quite something as well. you know he's he he is across all of his shows. He knows who is he knows who is in them. He's not afraid to give notes to people if he feels like they're not doing what he wants them to do. And I suppose the success of his shows would lead you to believe that that those notes are worth are worth taking. Um he's certainly given me notes in the past, and i've and i've um, And I've listened to him because there's not many people probably who've seen many, many more shows or spent more nights at theatre or who have made a success of being in the world of theatre than he has. You know, I think we're, we um, will struggle to, to, because of the lie of the land, I suppose. You know, I guess in the 80s, theatre was ripe for for someone like Cameron or for someone like Andrew to sort of um, become a figure like they have become. I think it will be hard for people to sort of become that these days for various reasons. But um, yeah, I have a great deal of, of admiration and respect for him. And uh, I, um, he's asked me to come and do a couple of things in the last couple of years. Uh, I won't say what, but it hasn't worked out for one reason or another. And I feel a sense of I feel a sense of sorrow with that actually, because I would love to work with him again, but. Um, you know sometimes you can't these things don't match up these 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 things don't align but uh, hopefully one day something will align.
0: Jumping forward uh, just a moment before we go back on to because you got to think for appearing in 25th anniversary shows and everything especially Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera which I'll get down to in a moment but I want to quickly uh, ask about this uh, Play by Danny Robbins, which is uh, 2.22 or 22 minutes past two. Um, this Danny, uh, so this Danny Robbins play, it's, it's getting so huge. And ever since I first saw it advertised, I'm thinking, I thought it was just a typical, uh, oh, it's a ghost play, like the woman in black and like ghost stories. Oh, it's going to be in the theater. But then it's gotten so big. Over time, and I really want to know from you because you performed in it, what is it about 222 that is so um captivating? Mm.
1: Um yeah, it's it I, I'm sort of thinking about it now. It really has it really has taken hold, hasn't it? I think they've they're just they've just opened the fourth cast, I think. Um what do I think, why, do we, why, why is it so captivating? I, I think it's down to many things really. Amongst those things are Danny himself as a writer who sort of started off in the comedy world and so has a, a lovely sort of wry sense of comedy working through all of the things that he does. In, lat- in latter years he's become really interested in, in the idea of the supernatural and um, has done a couple of brilliant podcasts which I thoroughly recommend, as well as your own, of course, Rhys. Um, but he's done one called The Battersea Poltergeist, which sort of started life as a, as a Radio 4 series, which is about a real haunting in, in Battersea in, in the 60s. And it's well worth... Some of it's dramatised and some of it's sort of documentary. And he's recently done another podcast series called Uncanny, which is where he gets members of the public to sort of send in their experiences with the supernatural. And he gets the sort of... Um, he'll get two people one sceptic and one believer to sort of talk it over. They're really worth listening to. So Danny comes to it as a writer with, with this sort of beautiful sense of comedy and contemporary drama and also this sort of, I think he would describe himself as a sort of nerd of the supernatural, like the desire for him to see a ghost is really quite high on his list. And... He's come up with this play that I think an awful lot of people can relate to. Uh, allied to that is, is the work of Matthew Dunster, who was the director, which makes it a very tight evening at the theatre, a very sort of visceral experience. It's not gory. It's not sort of shock horror in that way that some of those 90s sort of slasher films mm-hmm. were all about. It's much more psychological than that. And I think that's where Matthew's genius comes in, in terms of just taking the audience to a point where they feel comfortable and then bang, suddenly there's a there's a scare or something like that. Um, and I suppose I think there's something in the supernatural that will always keep people coming back. And there's probably maybe one play in a generation that really gets it for whatever reason. Like you said, Woman in Black, um, or inspector cause I think 222 for those reasons and probably some slightly intangible ones as well is is becoming a bit of a it's becoming a bit of a, a juggernaut really um, I think it's going to have a life beyond the UK very soon um, and I wouldn't be surprised this is I don't know anything about this but I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being adapted into a film or a television you know um, television uh, one-off or something like that it's because it's also just in one setting it's, it, 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 it takes place in, in in the front room of a house It's really really sort of claustrophobic and there's a thrill isn't there? I mean I don't know how you feel, Reese, but there's a thrill about getting scared Oh yeah and and, and um, certainly when when we, when we started rehearsing it we hadn't got the foggiest whether it was really going to work or not, or whether people, I think we felt it was a really good play, but the extent to which people were going to be scared about it, and the twist at the end was going to shock them, it was really hard to know how much that was actually going to land. And I remember the first night we did it, the four of us who were the sort of main guys, myself, Lily Allen, Jake Woods and Julia Chan, were sort of stood backstage, and there was a sort of look of like before we went on stage we all just kind of went well let's see what happens like these ones i mean lily had been dry retching in the in the um, in her dressing room before then and jake was a bit shaky um we were all a bit nervous because it was also the first show that a lot of us had done coming out of lockdown so getting loads of people back in the theater again felt like that felt like a success story in itself um let alone the play itself being good, so we felt like we were up against two things: firstly, a new play, and also enticing people back into the theatre. Which, at the time, as you know, I think people were really trepidatious about coming back in the theatre because, you know, this was a virus that spread by people being next to each other in enclosed spaces. So, we we sort of were up against it. But I'm am I'm really so pleased and proud of that show and. Hope, have you have you have you seen it, Reese? Have you had the chance? If not, oh. I hope you will at some
0: point. No, I hope I will, because that's that's it's one of those plays where I, I really need to get on and watch him because I was really, really disappointed that I never got to see um it's not a horror play, but it's based on on the makings of a brilliant horror film called The Shark Is Broken. Oh uh, yeah. And yeah. That's the one I regrettably did not get to see at the Edinburgh Fringe, or even in the West End, and that. And I'm, a, I'm I love Jaws. It's one of my favorite films. I don't care if the shot looked fake or not. It, it's the it's the tension. It's the yeah.
1: It's the psychological tension. Yeah, it? the
0: building of tension is like oh my god, I love it. And it's the performance, and to miss that play, uh, play with Ian Shaw playing his father. Yeah. It's it. It's one of those things I would love. And 2.22 is, is going to be up there. And I had a friend, uh, Chelsea, uh, she went to go and watch it. And she was like, you love your, if you love your horror, you got to go and watch it. And it's like, I I will never forget, I I, I remember watching The Woman in Black in London went on a school trip. Uh, I was at GCSC, I think, going in, yeah, Year 11 GCSE. So we went on a trip to London. We watched The 39 Steps first. Um, then we had a break in London. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then The Woman in Black came about and Some of us were like, yeah, we're we're, we're all right, we'll be all right. And literally by the end of it, some of us came out pale as, I mean, no pun intended, white as a ghost. Because we were that terrified. Because the way they did it was obviously turned it up. Now, bear in mind, I was up in the second tier and I was sat against the wall. But even then, I'm there going like that because it had that profound effect. And it was absolutely fantastic seeing it in London. But then when I saw it in the new theatre in Cardiff, I was so let down. So, so let down. Because what had happened was the new theatre left their safety lights on and the walls. So it was a little bit bright in the room. So the, I'm not um, slagging out the, um, the, the performers or anything like that. They did a fantastic job. Because um, I still left. Feeling oh uh, well, not feeling scared, but feeling very proud that they done that. But it was the fact that I saw the woman in black literally walk past, and I'm thinking, well, let <laughs> well, yeah, um, that, explain it. Yeah, yeah what's, what's the point? What's the point in me be, looking to be scared? I want to be scared, and and in the end, I think my drama teacher demanded the money back. um That's
1: fair enough. I mean, that's the. I mean, you go back to to um. Cameron, I suppose, and that's the sort of detail that I think if he found out about it, he'd, he'd hit the roof, you know. Because the theatre a really important experience to get everything right, you know. It just takes something like that, doesn't it, to sort of yeah. take you out of it, and then, and then your experience of it is completely altered. It, it, you know, it's why it, you know it's why we go rather than just sitting in our front rooms. We go to be transported and and to have that, you know. A, Disbelief suspended, and and to sort of sit there and go, I am somewhere else right now. I mm. don't want to be reminded that there's a fire exit.
0: Yeah, it was it was funny because I oh, the, the fire exit was so far back, but it was just literally some of the the safety lights just still on. Not even the fire exit. It was just the safety lights for them is still the light nearly the house lights, and I was like, really? Not great. Oh for God's sake! Go and. So quickly going back then, you're familiar with the 25th anniversaries of the Phantom of the Opera and, and Les Miserables. Yeah. You already mentioned Les Miserables. Um, talking about Phantom of the Opera. And uh, as always, how did that come about? Um, did you get to meet Angelo Webber? And was the experience of doing the 25th anniversary up there as in one of the top five or just up there as one of your finest?
1: Um. I don't know, it's a funny dichotomy this, because I'd never done the show, you know, I'd never done a run of the show in town, so I didn't know it all that well. I'd only ever seen it before in Spanish um, in Spain. A friend of mine was in in Madrid, and I've got to say, Rhys, watching Phantom of the Opera in Spanish, I don't speak Spanish. I didn't have a clue what was going on. I did not have a foggy. Um, So I didn't really have a connection with the show. And it was actually at the same time, I think it was the same year as we were, as we were doing um, the Les Mis film, I think it was at the end. Or was it the year before? No, it was the year before, that's right. But i just started off as, as Javert, I think it was, um, I think that's right. And um, oh, I'm getting my dates mixed up. Anyway, I was doing Les Mis at the time, I was doing Javert. And I think, I can't remember um, whether Ramin was doing Valjean at the time, but Cameron came in one day and said, "Look, we're doing the Phantom twenty fifth with Ramin as the Phantom." Uh, Cameron sort of said, "I always feel like the show works best when when Raoul is a is a sort of genuine um, opposition to the to the Phantom when when they are when it feels like they can take one another on, as opposed to the Phantom sort of having primacy the whole time." So he said, look, I know you guys are, you know, you've worked together a lot and he's like, I think it would work really, really well if you came and did Raoul. I felt slightly trepidatious about it because I didn't have a history with the show and I knew that there was an awful lot of decent actors who had done who had done the role who who probably would have been sat on on the sidelines thinking, hang on a minute, why is he doing it? He's never done the show before. So I, I I did sort of go into it with, feeling slightly with a bit of imposter syndrome but um but we rehearsed it maybe for about two or three weeks and if I'm totally honest with you the very first performance I think we did three performances the first performance I can't really remember much of because it was such a blur and I was so nervous at the Albert Hall sort of doing this brand new show I'd been doing Javert in the evenings and rehearsing Phantom during the day up until about two days before we did um, before we did the performances, so I was, I was pretty—I was running on empty, really. Um, but the reaction at the end was was something quite remarkable. And the reaction at the end of the third performance, which was the one I think that got filmed for DVD and the one that got tran- you, know, you know transmitted to, to 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 cinemas around the world, the, the response at the end was something that I'll always remember. Um, and you know, Andrew was around. Um, I didn't have a great deal to do with him because he didn't really involve himself too much in the rehearsals. You know, we had a big, big team that were looking after all of that. Gillian Lynn, uh, the late brilliant choreographer, Gillian Lynn, who um, choreographed the original production was, was there. And um, I remember enjoying working with Gillian a great deal. And and obviously working with Ramin and Sierra was, was great fun. that, That show and that, that, 25th anniversary has sort of taken on a bit of a life of its own in a way. You know, especially going somewhere like the Far East to Japan or um, or China, I, it, that production still is huge over there, and I get lots of lots of love from that. So I have a lot to thank it for. But it's not something that I, because I only did it for about three weeks and three performances, it's actually it's not something that I have. A, a huge attachment to, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a funny contradistinction, really, but um, I guess that's life sometimes. You you become known for things that... Or, 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 or you are... Um, there's, there is an attachment that you have to something which other people don't share. It's, it's quite strange.
0: You were in Doctor Who at one point, weren't you?
1: Yeah, I was shot in Cardiff, in fact.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Army of Ghosts. So it was literally one of Billy Piper's last episodes.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think it was her penultimate episode. Um,
0: yeah.
1: yeah, again, one I've never watched because I, I can't bear watching myself. But um, I, wish, I wish in a way I knew what I knew now and had gone go back and, and, and reshoot that. I didn't have a clue about acting for screen at that time. It was my first television job. And um, I think I sort of adopted a slightly theatrical approach to <laughs> acting on screen, um, which uh, I think if I had my time again, I'd go back and, and readjust, but you know, it's all a part of the learning curve, isn't it? Are you a Doctor Who fan, Reese? Oh, yes. like yeah, you,
0: Big, big one. Um, if, if I had, I mean, one of the dreams, one of the big dreams is to write for Doctor Who. Even if it was just for one episode, I could say I wrote for Doctor Who
1: yeah what is it about the show because it, i have to say i'm a sci-fi fan but doctor Who has never been one that i've 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 sort of cleaved to What what is it about the show that you that you love
0: well funny enough it was i think it's 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 everything that it's basically like a full english you got your <laughs> i've always said it, it's like a full English. Program. you got your beans you got your sausage you got your bacon you got you basically got every single piece that's for everyone if you know what i mean and and i and i think it's because that there's there's always been and i've always said this and um i've always been heavily critical on the chris chibnall era i've always been i've always been critical on chris chibnall's writing um but i've always said the formula to doctor who has been working for nearly 60 well not even I'm not even going to include Chris Chibnall's um, run, but over 50 years where there is a monster or there is a situation, as I say, the doctor turns up at that place where it's back in time, in the future, in another planet or whatever, arrives at that situation. He deals with, he or she deals with the situation and they fight, there's a bit of a problem and then the doctor wins and goes off to fight another day, and I thought, well, if that's that's always been the formula then that's always worked, and and that's actually a, a good question on your part because I really, I think it's just for everyone to enjoy, and I and I think that the issue is like I me, mean, my dad always watched Doctor Who, and he's um you know he's he's tolerable and he's open minded to all oh, female doctor and anything. I've got no issues with Jodie Whittaker. I just think she was, um. I think she was let down by the writing and I've always said I would have done 10 times more better for Jodie Whittaker. And I know what kind of doctor she would have been to get going and be memorable. I, I just think it was a bit sad, but for Doctor Who as a whole, uh, you could say it's the monsters. You could even say the Daleks. You could say the master, you could say, the story itself or the formula itself or anything it, it could be for anyone who's just intrigued for me it's just everything i just love the sci-fi i just love i love how the doctor is changes character changes actors mm-hmm. different periods it's just everything about it yeah
1: it's funny it's it's never been one that that, that i've gone for but um i can see I can see that sort of continual revolution or that continual evolution in the show could just be sort of semi addictive really mm-hmm. I um, maybe I should try it. <laughs> there's so much to see Reese. i can't I can't try I can't start something else that would be food. <laughs>
0: um I take it you though it's like seeing that it's it's um, you know through evolution it goes through time and everything, but it another one as well you you mentioned uh. I can't. I can't always pronounce it. coil Anus is. Anus, yeah. Corianus. Shakespeare plays. I mean, I've done two in my time, but they were cut down Shakespeare school productions, and even then, I. I mean, I, I managed to do it, and I managed to learn the lines. But every time I see, you know, monologues or soliloquies, of the play, and I just think to myself, how does the likes of. Uh, the likes of Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, Tom Hilston that we mentioned, um, David Tennant and so many, uh, Judy Dench, so many fine actors and actresses who, who just off the top of their just go, boom, is a Shakespearean monologue. I just think, how, how does one do that? And what was your experience like on that uh, play as well, along with Tom Hilston?
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's part of the, the job, really, isn't it? Yeah, getting chops around a monologue or a or whatever. Um, yeah, Coriolanus was was uh, it was a real ride, you know. It was um, it was great to work with Tom. He's sort of force of nature, really, and was terrific in that role. It was sort of written for him, or, or, albeit four hundred years earlier. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen anything at the On My Warehouse. I, I, you know, worked there quite a few times, but it's a it's a very intimate space, and to do a big sort of epic play in such an intimate space changed to uh, change the nature of it. But um, yeah, we we uh, we were sort of um uh, we were a happy bunch on that play because it's not one that's all that well known or all that well loved, and I would say our director Josie Rourke sort of did a brilliant job at streamlining it and making it understandable for people and really sort of turning it into something that was very appealing to people. It helped that Tom and I was sort of, you know, we had a big fight in Act 1 that, that was quite compelling and then there were some terrific actors in it you know, people like Mark Gatis, speaking of Doctor Who, Mark Gatis and um, Deborah Findlay and the great Big Eater Robert Sorensen from Denmark and Peter Jersey and you know, some Alfie, Enoch, some like, quite incredible cast actually. When you think about it, so we, we're very fortunate with that. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. You know, I think most actors probably at some point in their in their lives desire a bit of Shakespeare in their in in around their around their way. So um, that was my first one, and I'm glad I did it. And then um, I was lucky enough to do *Winter's Tale* with. Um, Kenneth Branagh and Judy Dench and, and a few other more wonderful people a couple of year, years later. So I had a nice little kind of spurt of Shakespeare for a while. I'd, I'd love to do another one. Um, you know, one day it's, uh, it's a privilege, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, what was it like to do um, All is True with Kenneth Branagh, Ian McKellen and Judy Dench? Because speaking of Shakespeare, cause you, you played the part of John Hall, which was the son-in-law to Shakespeare. So um, I, I will be honest. I've. I've only seen snippets of the film hmm.
1: um i've never seen it so you, you've got you've seen more than i have <laughs>
0: but do you do, <laughs> do, during the production side what was it like to to work with kenneth Banner? yeah
1: yeah i mean over and above the fact that he's wonderful and a brilliant leader and an incredible sort of human and finds time to do all sorts of things which is it feels sort of like he's got more time in the day. I don't quite know how, the, the, the amount of stuff that he gets done. The strangest thing about shooting that film was the fact that Ken was obviously playing Shakespeare and directing it. So more often than not, um, he would be behind the camera in his prosthetics and in his costume dressed as Shakespeare. So it was like being directed by William Shakespeare. Um, and you know that man has a sort of straight shot somehow to Shakespeare. It feels like Ken's a sort of natural inheritor of that of that line of English literature. so it, it didn't feel it felt like it felt at times a bit trippy, sort of watching Ken behind the camera and then sort of seeing him come out from the camera, acting with him as Shakespeare and then him going back behind the camera still as Shakespeare. That's quite strange. Um, but it was a beautiful story, actually. and um And, you know, I've worked with Judy a couple of times now and it's just sort of anyone in their right mind who works with her, I think, just sort of stands and tries to learn. And that's what I did on that one.
0: Last question for you then, Hadley, and I've always asked this question to many, many people on the podcast. How do you look back on your career so far?
1: I don't think I've ever been asked that, Reese. How do I look back on my career? I suppose I—I I would say if if someone had offered me the career that I've had so far when I was twenty or twenty-one, just about starting the industry, I would have taken it. I would have snapped their hands off. So, yeah, I've prided in a lot of it. Unfinished business elsewhere, but I think I would have. I would have been, been proud of what I've done if someone had said, this is what you're going to do by 42, you know, if I was 21. Um, yeah, I don't know. How do you feel? I always feel like there's more to do, more people to work with, more to learn, more to create.
0: Yeah, I've always said, I mean, I'm I'm 26 and I'm more determined than ever to to reach that next step whereas to get one of my plays on the Western stage and then or maybe Broadway is always the dream, but I always say um, never give up, never give in, always enjoy the moments. There's no such thing as not enough time. There's always time. You just got to learn to get off your ass and do it.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's the thing that I'm learning more as I get older, I suppose, is that doors aren't necessarily open for you. Sometimes you have to open them yourself. And that mean that does mean getting up for your ask, and doing stuff, and and, and getting shit done, and and um. Yeah, I, I I learned that a bit late, I think, but I I totally agree with that. You know, do it yourself.
0: Mm. Well, that that's the thing, because in a couple of weeks' time, me and my friend Lewis will be performing a play of mine called um, "A Writer's Guide to Madness of Success and Failure," and it's literally about two playwrights, two rookie playwrights. Who feel that they've got a play on their hands? They, they're gonna to go to the West End stage, but then it turns out that the play is not gonna happen. The production's being halted. The financial backers have pulled out, and then they decide, in a drunken stupor, that they're gonna go rob one of the uh one of the
1: <laughs> playwrights <laughs> as bank robbers. Amazing.
0: Yeah, and uh, but the thing is, it's set in the one room. That's all it is. It's set in an office, and we're playing drunk. And my friend, he's you know sitting his character's office and he's pulling out the gun and goes we're gonna do this and i'm my character's like what do you mean we're gonna do this what and it's more like a let's do it we'll do it no i can't do it let's do it well, no we can't do it then i go oh yeah let's do it oh no we don't want to do it now but it's <laughs> conflict so
1: um yeah that sense of let let's do it uh we've got to draw this to a close but um I've worked, I've worked with Mel Brooks on, on Young Frankenstein, and that's something that he, I think, understands about human nature more than anybody else. That idea that more often than not, as humans, as humans we go, yeah, let's do it! And then you completely, like, you either lose your nerve or you try it and it goes wrong. Mm. Um, but that's part of the beauty of life, isn't it? Yeah. you know, Improvise, adapt and overcome. Uh.
0: Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalized keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best priced jewelry whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, bangle or even more? Look no further crafted arts crafted arts is a local business based in barry within the Vale of morgan and they have a range of all the perfect items you need if it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary or maybe it's for someone's birthday maybe something for christmas or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time crafted arts it's the business for you. If you want to know more or see what they have in stock, then you can visit them locally at 29 High Street, Barry, of Morgan, CF627EB, or you can go onto their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk. You can even email them at info@craftedarts.co.uk, at or maybe just give them a call at 078994248. Trust me, it's worth it for the perfect gift. The best thing about creative space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in tv film or even theater we also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well so do you want to have experience in making jewelry do you want to pick up a hobby but Do not know what to take or where to start then look no further than the veil jewelry workshops veil jewelry workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry they will help you make a range of silverware including rings bracelets and many more pieces you will learn the basic silversmith skills such as soldering texturing shaping and lots more not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well so if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewelry and if you're very interested go onto their website at www.veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at or even phone At zero double seven eight nine seven nine four two four eight.